Okay, so I, I have to tell you a couple things about uh, coming here. We, when Jonathan talked about planting a church in Colorado Springs, we were like, you know, I think that's that's really cool and great. And one of the one of the things he initially said about it was that he didn't want to be a place that stole people from other churches, and that's one of the reasons why they wanted to do it at five o'clock at night, because if people felt comfortable somewhere, they could still come here and still connect. One of the things that Element is about, and we always want people to say this when they show up and leave, is two things: we're about Jesus and gospel community. That's what we're about. And I think that the whole thing of our push for gospel community is understanding that it's not small groups, it's learning how to do church together because if you end up in the hospital or something happens to you that you need help, you, you're not going to talk to you know, 500 people in the church. You're going to find that, that small group of community around you that love Jesus and come together. So that's what we're constantly trying to do in gospel community. And I don't know why I told you that, but okay. Uh, why don't you stay with me for reading of God's word? We'll get started. Uh, this is Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and it says this. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let's pray. Father, tonight I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you, even in the midst of the times and the places where we don't see the outcome of where we are going or what you are doing. God, in those times and places where maybe we have made bad decisions that have put us into places and we can't see how you could even bring anything redeeming in the midst of it, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who rest and trust in you, even in those moments, and that you would teach us what it truly means to be a people of faith. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, I don't need to tell you this because you guys are in the middle of this series. It's called, is it, is it archetype or archetype? Archetype. Archetype. Okay. Is it realtor or realtor? Right. Okay. Anyway, so you're in the midst of it, but this is really based out of Hebrews 11, and there's a bunch of people listed in there, and it talks about them and their faith and what their faith looked like. So a few weeks ago, my wife and I were out on the lake, and I, by my own stupidity, broke our boat. It's in the shop. We were supposed to do a little longer vacation last week. We cut it short because I had broken the boat, and we decided to come here. So I'm talking to Jonathan about this, and he goes, hey, you want to speak, or you want to help do music? And I said, what's going to be easier and more enjoyable for you? And instantly, he sent back, you're talking about Samson. I'm like, okay. So it might be good or bad for you. If it's bad, blame him. If it's good, you're welcome. Okay. Uh, I think this series that you guys are in here towards the end, it's a little bit funny. So uh, Hebrews 11.32 says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets. So the writer of Hebrews didn't have time to get to these people. But your element, Colorado Springs, and apparently you do. I think that's really funny. So, this series why it takes months for you. And I got to tell you that I have a really hard time with the guy we're looking at tonight, this guy Samson. I look at his life, and the guy is really a terrible dude. You might have seen him as a, as a kid in a cartoon with really long hair and being really strong. And the only thing you know about him is that Samson is a guy who was strong. That might be all you know. But I'm going to tell you, Samson, really, he's a terrible guy. Why is he in Hebrews chapter 11 as an archetype of faith? Why is he there? And I think it's sometimes maybe because we misunderstand the word faith and what it means. So today when we say the word faith, our culture simply think it means belief, right? If you can muster up enough of this feeling inside to convince yourself of something that may not be true, but you convince yourself it's true, well, hey, that's faith. That's faith. And this is how a lot of people look at it. And I got to tell you, nowhere in the Bible does it talk about faith like that. Uh, we did this series last year at Element in Santa Maria 
not this element, in Santa Maria, called The Reason for God out of Tim Keller's book. And in that series, I said that a lot of people, a lot of non-Christians will look at Christians and they will say, well, I can't believe in God because God, I can't verify Him. I can't see Him. How can I believe in something like that, that it's just something I have to feel? Because that's what Christians have done for a very long time. They've run around and told people that faith is just believing something that you can't see, which is a Bible verse, but slightly out of context. And they say, it's just something you feel. There is this bizarre assumption that when religious people go to church or go to worship God, we switch our minds from in intellect to mere belief, to mere feelings. We shut off our five senses and just go with what we feel. Do you know, again, in the Bible, nowhere does it talk about faith like that at all. The Bible describes faith in a way where the words belief actually means the word trust. It's this Greek word called pistis. Pistis means trust, trusting in who God is and what he has done. Our faith is not grounded in some weird nebulous belief in something that is out there. Our faith is grounded in the one who has come to rescue us in the person of Jesus. That's who we believe in. We have faith in Christ. We don't have faith in faith. And there's an object of our faith and all the acts of our faith are going to come out of that person that we trust in because we have an object of our faith. And I know we're talking about Samson. I promise I'm going to get there. But we have to understand that faith in Jesus exploded in what was considered a very reasoned society. And yet they saw what he did and how it changed the world. By the time the uh, AD 300 came around, there was, you know, it goes from 12 believers to over 51% of the Roman Empire believing in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave. That's why. Because a dead man came back to life. All that they spoke about is true because of this thing called the resurrection. And our faith is meant to rise from the proclamation of the things that God has actually done. The things that Jesus has said and did. And I'm not saying faith can include feelings because it can, but faith is not just a bag of feelings. And so let's start there and we understand what faith is. So now we're going to look at Samson. If you have a Bible and you can see enough, uh, you can open up to Judges chapter 13 because that's kind of where the story of Samson starts. So Judges 13, we're going to be there. Uh, this message is going to be broken into a few parts. If I talk too fast, tell me to slow down because I do talk fast, I know. Uh, and I'm going to break it into eight different parts to try and get you his story, and it is not a pretty story. So part one in the story is the birth of Samson, okay? Chapter uh, Judges 13, starting in verse 2, goes like this. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, Behold, you are barren and have no children. And she's like, yeah, I know. Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God, and that means dedicated to God, from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this is Samson's beginning. Samson's name is this word Shimshon, and it literally means light or light bringer or light bearer. And his parents get an instruction manual with the baby. I know you got kids. You're like, man, that would have been great. I'm having a baby. And God's like, here's the instruction manual. You're welcome. Thank you, Jesus. Doesn't happen like that. But apparently with Samson, it does. And the job description has a couple things in it. Okay. First off is save Israel. Begin to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. 
The Philistines at this time are a strong people. They come from the Aegean Sea, and they're very advanced for the time and place. They had a navy and chariots and a centralized culture. God's people are in the time of the judges, hence the name of the book, Judges. And they don't have a centralized government because God is meant to be their king. And so as they're looking at this central, their centralized government and seeing what Israel is like, they're like, these people are like hillbillies, backwards, running around naked, making moonshine in the woods, marrying their cousins. That's how they saw the Israelites. Actually, today, the word Palestine comes from that word for Philistine. And the second thing you see in this description is a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow, it says, you know, don't cut your hair, don't drink wine. This vow is not usually made for other people. You make it for yourself. It's not like, oh, I'm having a baby. You're going to be a Nazarite. That's not how that typically works out. It was a physical act on your part to commit yourself to God for a time for a purpose. And in the Nazarite vow, you would have no wine, no eating grapes, no skins of grapes, no seeds of grapes, no vinegar made from grapes, no grapes use. This is not an alcohol thing. It's like giving up something for Lent, right? I'm going to give up ice cream for Lent or something like that. That's kind of what it was. For them, it was anything related to the vine. You also were supposed to have no contact with anything that was considered unclean. Unclean. So no non-kosher food, non-kosher animals, things like that. No contact with the dead body. And also in the end, you can't cut the hair on your head. So your beard, your nose, your ears, your eyebrows, uh, your armpits. If you're a woman, you'd be like one of them French women. You know, you, you, you look kind of frightening. You're like a Ted Nugent on steroids. That what you look like. Ah, that's what you look like all the time. And if you have this vow, and you say, I'm going to make a Nazarite vow for 365 days. And on day 364, you're sitting at a dinner, and Betty White's sitting next to you, and she kills over dead and lands on you. You just can't say, oh, I was close enough. What you have to do is shave your head, shave everything, and you start over from day one, all the way back through 365 days. Samson, this decision was made for him as a kid. How well do you think that works out? Yeah, okay, N not, not well, not well. And this is kind of important because the only other person that kind of even resembles this is John the Baptizer, and he went a different direction in a good way. Uh, so part two now becomes Samson's adolescence. So flip over to Judges 14. At this point, Samson becomes a teenager. Now, how does Samson, as the light bringer, actually live his life? Judges 14, starting in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. That, that's like a new approach, right? Like hashtag Me Too culture. You just don't kind of do that. <laughs> Robots. I just, I just, whatever. Anyway, so <laughs> tough crowd is what I got to say. Anyway, verse three, but his, but his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, an Israelite reading that would read in this unclean, okay, unclean. But Samson said to his father, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. That right there will become the passing refrain throughout the book of Judges. It keeps coming back to this. Everybody in Israel at this time did what was right in their own eyes. God can't tell me what to do. I'm going to go with what my heart feels, what my heart tells me to do. So glad we don't do that again anymore, right? Uh, verse 5, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. What's Samson not supposed to go near? 
vines, vineyard. Exactly. It's a subtle hint of what's starting to happen in his life. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Like you know, right? <laughs> We've all torn young goats. <laughs> Whatever. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Why not? Right? If I tore a lion with my bare hands, I would tell everybody I tore. I was going to tear a goat, but I saw a lion. I thought, why not a lion? I'll, I'll go with the lion. <laughs> then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. And after some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, this is why he doesn't tell them he killed the lion. Because that is now, and one, it's an unclean animal, but secondly, it's dead and he has come into contact with a dead unclean animal honey is kosher so it's okay to eat but it is inside the carcass of an impure unclean non-kosher animal he is a teenager he's pushing the boundaries around himself he's breaking them uh, the light bringer Shimshon is walking in line with darkness and what he does at this moment is he leads his parents in the same way he is going doesn't tell them where it came from but it's unclean and he hands it to them that's Samson. So part three in the story now becomes a wedding. Samson's going to go. He's going to marry this girl that was right in his eyes. And while he is there, there is now a confrontation with the Philistines. As young men do, they like to one-up one another. And there are bets that go back and forth. And Samson gives them a riddle. And he says, if you can solve my riddle, I will give you 30 garments of clothing. And so they're trying to figure it out. They can't. They go to Samson's bride and they say, tell us what the answer is. She's like, I don't know. We'll go ask him. So she goes and she she asks him and she pressures them until he says this is the answer to the riddle. She goes back and tells the other people and so they go, now give us our 30 things of clothing and Samson goes, hold on, goes to another town, kills 30 people, takes their garments, brings them back and goes, here's your clothing. And on top of that, he says, you would not have known what the answer was if you didn't plow my heifer. Hashtag me too, right? That's Samson. They're just wrong all over this. Part four is the after the wedding blues. Go to Judges 15. It says this, after some days at the time of wheat harvest, so this could even be months from after the whole wedding and Samson has kind of been like, get away from me, I don't want to be around you anymore, woman, and he runs away. Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Maybe he's going to tear it in front of her. I don't know. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. Not a euphemism. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Now, what you have to understand what just happened here is really a miracle. Because you have a woman who was married to somebody else. And at that point, that woman, if she was no longer married to this person, the only thing she could usually do is become a prostitute because nobody would have wanted her. And this dad find somebody else to take her in as a wife. It's an amazing thing that this guy took her in, that the dad found somebody, the daughter was able to go somewhere else because Samson had just rejected her. But now that he shows up again because it's wheat harvest and he's, I'm sorry, PG-13, he's, he's a little horny at this point. He wants to go and have sex, so he shows up and she's like, I, 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 I thought you were done. 
And this is Samson's response to it. Verse 3, And Samson said to them, this, shall, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. It shows you who he is. He has made these decisions that have led to this moment in his life, but he doesn't take any responsibility for them. And he says, I'm going to make all of those people pay because of my own decision. I'm going to really get back at them. And so what he does is he catches some foxes, Apparently goats weren't around and he catches some foxes and he ties a bunch of torches to their tails and he sets them free and he run and these foxes then run into these standing grains in the vineyards of the Philistines and it all burns down. The Samson, who is now the light bringer, is now using fire to destroy people's livelihood. Now, after this happens, the Philistines get very angry. What happens? Why did Samson do this? And someone says, oh, well, you know, this guy who had this daughter that Samson married, well, she gave his wife to his companion, and all this kind of stuff happened. And so, verse 6, Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. What? This is not in the cartoon, right? It seems like this is, gets very, very serious. This is the woman Samson had fallen in love with. This is the woman who was right in his eyes. And you see his life totally starting to unravel. It begins with love in the wrong place, a bit of honey from where he shouldn't have been eating the honey that he kept hidden, and now it has caused all kinds of destructions. Things don't seem to be getting better. Part five, Samson now runs away. So the Philistines are looking for him. We got to get this Samson. He burned our stuff down. We're gonna... And so they go to the Israelites. They're more powerful than the Israelites. And what they do with the Israelites, they say, if you don't give us Samson, we're going to wipe all of you out. So they go and they say, we'll find Samson. Don't worry, we'll bring him. So they go and they find Samson. And Samson's like, what do you want? Well, they want you. If you don't come, they're going to kill all of us. So Samson goes, okay, tie my hands with ropes and take me back to them. Samson, so they take Samson back to the Philistines, and the Philistines are like, yay, this is great. They hand him over, and as they do, Judges 15, verse 15, uh, he, he breaks the ropes, and then 15, 15, it says, and then he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, in song because he's a poet, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. Samson kills a thousand people. But how does he do it? How does he do it? He grabs the fresh jawbone of a donkey, clean or unclean? Unclean. 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 He is strong, he is mighty, but he is going against how God has called him to live in his life. It's, it's not that God doesn't want to liberate his people. It's not that, that God doesn't want to use Samson. It's that Samson keeps going about everything in his life the wrong way, his own way, the unclean way. Now, part six, Samson now goes to Gaza. Uh, Judges 16, you can go there. Judges 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. See, this is not, uh, this, this is not a PG message. This is like PG-13, right? Because that's not a euphemism. They didn't just talk. Now, prostitute, clean or unclean? Unclean. I know you're thinking in more than one way, but yes, they're, they're unclean. Okay. But it shows the full meltdown of his life because what happens in Gaza doesn't stay in Gaza. They find out, oh, Samson's in Gaza. And so they go to get Samson. Samson wakes up, goes out at night, rips the city gates off of the hinges like you do, and he carries them back to Israel. That's that. Part seven now becomes a story that people hear about Samson and Delilah. Okay, Judges 16, verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. Sorek means vine. 
okay, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Samson is always falling for foreign women, and here it happens again. Uh, she is probably a Philistine, and there's a pun here in Hebrew between Samson and Delilah. You know, Samson means light, light bringer, light bearer. Delilah, it's an Akkadian word, and it means worship, but in in Hebrew, the word for night or darkness is this word called Lila. So you have Samson and Delilah. It sounds like night, and it's kind of a literary clue of Samson's life and where he is. And so Delilah starts to put all this pressure on Samson. Tell me where your great strength comes from. Let me know. Tell me all about it. And Samson, you'll see three times he gives her false answers. He lies really. You can read the story if you want to, but not right now. Uh, and, and, he, and he gives her all these, all these fake answers the entire time. And finally, and then she's like, you don't love me. You don't tell me what's actually. Let's make the and so finally Samson goes, I can't handle her crying. Okay, and, and he tells her. He gives in. Uh, chapter 16, verse 17 says this, And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak like, and be like any other man. Now, if you ever hear stories about Samson, it's always the strength is in his hair. Do you know the Bible never says that? Samson says that. God never said that. This is where Samson is at. Samson believes there's a connection between his hair and his strength. And maybe it's true, but we don't know. What you see is every time Samson becomes strong and does some feet of strength, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Because if you have long hair, it doesn't mean that you're strong. It doesn't mean that, that you're powerful. The, the hair was meant to be a symbol of Samson's connection to God. Kind of like in a little bit we'll take communion. It, it could be uh, maybe baptism. It could be a cross that somebody wears. Something like that. It's, it's a symbol. For Samson in the story, it seems like his hair on his head is the very last vestige of a personal connection with the God that he recognizes. That is the only thing he has left. Everything else he has violated in his life, but not his hair, not his beard. I mean, you ever see people like that who's like, oh no, I got this cross, and, that's, and they live like hell all week long, and they have nothing to do with Jesus, and it's like, oh, but, but don't violate the cross, and they get very serious about things like a cross or a Bible. or It's, it's really weird, but that's Samson, and we still do it today. Chapter 16, verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. That's the tragedy of Samson's story. Samson, the light bringer, is now blinded and lives in darkness, shaved head, captured by his enemies. But part eight is kind of the end of this. There's actually a part nine, but it'd take me a whole nother message, so you're welcome. But, but uh, part eight, this is really the end. And when you get to the verse 28 in Judges 16, there is this party. And the Philistines are very happy because they have captured Samson. So this party is probably taking place in the temple of their god Dagon. And what they do in the middle of this is say, hey, go get Samson. Bring him out. And they're going to want to mock Samson and mock God in the midst of this. And they tie him between these two standing pillars. Now, in Judges 16.22, there is this little detail, and it says this, But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. 
Now in Numbers chapter 6, when you violate the Nazarite vow, you shave your head and start over. I told you that at the very beginning when we started this. It's an understanding that, you know what, I may have messed up. I may have fallen. I may have done something stupid, but there is still hope that there is still forgiveness, there is still grace, that God is still there, there is still life. Life does not have to be lived in failure. There is a brand new day. And I think Hebrews that, that would read this story would see that and go, oh, Samson's getting a do-over here. This is amazing. And so when he's, when he's bound and shackled in this place, you'll read the first place that Samson actually prays. Uh, chapter 16, verse 28. Then Samson called out to the Lord, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God. Starts out really good, right? Oh man, this is going to be a great prayer of repentance. Nope. That I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And that's how he ends it, right? I mean, he's a lot like us, I think, that we, he prays, but he really makes his faith all about himself. And God, I've been wrong. You know, instead of God change me, it's God change all those other people, like how we love to pray. And so Samson's between these two pillars, and he's going to pull down these two pillars now and bring down the entire temple. We call that bad engineering, by the way. Uh, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ishtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So this fire, this light, Samson dies in a pagan temple buried in the rubble of his enemies. A Robert Alter called Samson a blind, uncontrolled force, leaving a path of destruction which culminated with him finally destroying himself. Samson is like an Amy Winehouse, uh, like, a, like a Heath Ledger, like a Jim Morrison. They end their own life. And so you have to ask, you go to Hebrews 11, why was Samson in there? Is Samson a good guy or Samson a bad guy? Did, did he succeed in beginning to free the Israelites? You know, what you saw was literally 20 years of his life from adolescence through that adulthood. And what we have to understand when we see this is we don't get all of Samson's moments. You just get the dramatic ones. Were there times when Samson worshipped God wholeheartedly and fervently? We don't know. We just get this. So what do you do with him? I think there's two things you have to understand. First off, we must understand that the Bible has many parts in it that are descriptive and not prescriptive. Prescriptive means here is what you must do. The Bible never says go out and be like Samson. Okay, what it does is it describes his life. It describes what the things that he did and the things that God called him to and how he didn't live the places that God called him to. And it's not saying Samson's a great guy. It's not telling us to live the same way. It's describing his life. But I think it also can describe the goodness of God because God still, even in that place, tied in that temple with his head shaved, God still comes upon him. The second thing is you have to understand how the scripture sees things is usually not how we see things, especially in regard to sin. Like, we think about sin as being between me and God and my own conscience. You know, whatever, if I feel it's okay, then it's okay. We say things like, how you live is up to you. Do you know the Bible has no such perspective like that? It sees sin as generational. It sees sin as affecting the community that is around us. Like when Samson dips his hand into the lion's carcass for the honey, it goes out past him. It doesn't just stay with him. It affects his parents and the people around him. When he sleeps with a prostitute in Gaza, these people hear about it. Samson's got to go out and rip the gates off their city. It doesn't just stay as a private choice between him and that woman. There are ripples that go out from all of our decisions that we don't even get to see. The consequences to our choices go far beyond just our own little lives. And that's what the scriptures want us to see. The decisions we make today will affect those who come after us. And when you make a decision, have you ever asked, how will this affect those that come after me? 
something that's a really good way to think about something if you're like, should I do this? Should I not do this? Think about how it will affect people that come after me. Because Samson never thought that. He never asked that question. Our life is not just a zero-sum game. It extends out through our culture, through the people we come in contact with. And our culture hates to admit that, but it's true. Even in churches, a lot of people think only about themselves. Oh, I didn't like the sermon, or I didn't like the music. When that, when's that Aaron guy going home so I can just get Jonathan and Christian back? You know, whatever. Like my tastes weren't satisfied. When is the last time we thought, maybe it's not about me? Maybe it's about what God wants to do in and through me to touch other people. Because we may think no one is watching, or, and what does it matter if I metaphorically dip my hand into the lion's mouth and eat the honey? Who cares? No one needs to know. It always ripples out. It always affects. And when you get to Hebrews 11, after seeing the story of Samson, and you're talking about how is he an archetype of faith, of, of faith, I think Samson is more an archetype of us and what we look like in our lives. And I think that's really why that story is there to help us to understand that we are a people who are constantly running to unclean things. This is what it says, uh, verse 32 34 in Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. That's the point. They were made strong out of weakness, not their strength. All the things that they did were blessings of what God did through them. Again, how does Samson make that list? We have in our minds that a person of faith is about doing it right. Uh, it's like being a saint. But that's not the story of the Bible, and that's really not the story of Samson. Every person in that list in Hebrews 11 ended up doing some terrible dumb things. Gideon distrusted God every step of the way and ended his life ends up building altars around the country to false gods. What's up with that guy? Barak doesn't trust God enough to go do what God calls him to do. You know, you got Jephthah. He might have murdered his daughter. Oh, is that a spoiler for next week, by the way? Come on, man. Sorry. Um, you, know, you, got, you got David. You know, David goes out, sleeps with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, brings the husband back and says, hey, go sleep with your wife so I can say the baby's yours. And the guy says no. So David has the guy killed. I mean, does that go on your resume as a saint? Do you want anybody to know that stuff? Not at all. Not at all. What does it mean to be a person of faith? I think that we understand that we don't, have to do it perfectly. Not that we're not called to be better, but that we are not a perfect people. But God is a perfect God, and He rescues us exactly where we are. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, uh, Paul is talking about Jesus speaking to him and his weakness. This is what he says. But he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says from this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And Paul will then say in places, I am the worst sinner of them all. That's what he will say. I do not know how we get it in our heads that God can't handle our sins and failures. Because most of the time in our life, that's all that we really are. If Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't pay for our sins and failures, we are in some serious trouble. And this is why the gospel is good news. It is good news. God can handle our sins. God can handle our faults. God can handle our failures. It's why when we come to God and our failures in these places, we begin to understand His grace so much better. We begin to trust Him more. I, I think in our wounds and our failures in those places, we understand God's grace so much deeper and so much more fully. I think that in our times of being like Samson, almost more than any other time in our lives, we understand the grace of God better.
Every religion in this world is you come to God when you get it right. Oh, look how successful I am. Look at all the good things that I'm doing. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is when we acknowledge our sins and our failures. That's where we meet Jesus. Henry Nouwen wrote this book. It's called The Wounded Healer. And in this book, he says this, People who are in contact with their sins and failures are the best type of healers. It's the former addict who can step into another addict's life and say, I know it sucks right now. I know this is hard, but I'm going to walk with you through this because I have been through this. I think it's the, the former Samsons who can step into other Samsons' life who are dealing with pride and anger and focusing on themselves who can actually help those people. Because I know when I'm broken and I've done something stupid, I want to talk to somebody who gets it, who understands. I don't want to talk to somebody who says, yeah, sucks for you. I got my life all together. It's terrible. That, you know, Jesus comes to us in our brokenness and our failures, which is the good news of the gospel. Can Samson make the list of the of the faithful in Hebrews 11. I guess so. I guess so, right? And so can you. So can I. Because of what he has done for us. Because it's not about Samson's goodness. It's not about Samson doing it right. It's about God's goodness. This is the idea that Samson would never be good enough, just like we are people who can never be good enough. Uh, recently in the last couple weeks, uh, there's this guy named Joshua Harris. Have you ever heard about him? Years ago, he wrote this. He wrote this book that kind of messed up a bunch of young Christian kids. Uh, but but it was it was from a good place. And he was a pastor of a church for years and years. And and just recently, he's getting divorced from his wife. And he says he doesn't know if he believes in God anymore and all this stuff. And people are tossing some of the good books that he wrote. And and I and I was talking to someone about this this week. And I said and I said. Why, when somebody fails, does that negate everything that they said that was gospel-centered? Because it doesn't. It doesn't. Were there times and places in Samson's life where maybe he showed who God is by the things he did? I don't know. I don't know. I would have to think that maybe there's something there. Does all the sin negate the, that good little thing that he might have done in a few places? No, because our faith doesn't rest in people. It doesn't rest in our actions. Our faith rests in our God who has rescued and saved us. That's the point of the gospel. Jesus goes to the cross. He lives the life that we should have lived, and he dies a death we should have died. And we get new life to be in a relationship with God again because of what Christ has done. That's the beauty of the gospel. And this is what we always must come back to, understanding if we want to have an archetype of faith, we have faith in the one who rescued us. And yes, we will stumble, and yes, we will fall, and yes, we should be better, but our righteousness doesn't rest upon us. It rests upon Him. And that makes us a humble people so we can go out and live our lives differently. Now, tonight... You're going to be invited to communion. If you would like to take communion, it's in the back of the room. Uh, you're going to take a piece of bread. You're going to dip it. Do you have wine and grape juice or both? Or just wine? All right. Okay, so you, <laughs> you dip it in the wine, and then what that represents is Christ's body and blood that was shed for us as a people. This is, it's the understanding that our righteousness comes through Him and what He has done. And so we trust Him in that. So if you'd like to take communion, it's there. So we're going to play a couple songs that happen. You're going to be able to uh, worship God through, through song. Uh, if you need prayer any more than what has kind of been talked about so far, grab one of us, you know, a Christian, and, and we'll sit down and pray with you later. Maybe you're in a place where you feel like my life has to be done in a certain way or God's not going to love me or accept me. Guys, th that's a terrible way to live. God has got a grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so we as a people are those who simply rest in what He has done. 
And if you feel like your life is under condemnation because you're not doing it right, have one of us pray with you. Talk with us a little bit later. If, if you like someone to pray, if you have anything in your life, let us know. We, we'd love to pray with you. Um, do you guys do... Oh, am, I, am I in your way? No. I'm just I flapping around up here. From over here. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. You're fine. Okay. Uh, and then we're going to eat later. And we're going to hang out and worship God through some wine some of you brought. I brought John them a couple beers. And we're going to hang out and eat together and hopefully fellowship with God together. And, and understand in the midst of all of it that our God is the one that draws us together because he is good. All right, uh, let's pray. And I'll move out of your way when I do it. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for being a God of rescue, of redemption, of hope, of grace. That you can take someone even like Samson. And he can make it into this thing that we would look at as being an archetype of faith. Not because of the good things that he did, but because of the good things that you have done. And so I ask that in our lives, we would be those who recognize the good things that you have done and continue to do. That our faith wouldn't just be this thing we try and muster up enough belief in some nebulous thing, but we would come to be a people who trust you for what you have done because that changes our lives completely. We'd be a people who trust you, who honor you, because you are the great God who has rescued and saved. So tonight, move us to a place where we live in your righteousness and your grace, that we again would be a people who come just as we are to you and honor you with all that we are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.